Well, good morning. It is really nice to be with you. And greetings from the little church in Pakenham that we come from. We're four years old, so you guys are 90 years old. Uh, we're just babies. We're only four. Um, but it is a real joy to be with you today. And thank you for the opportunity. And what a, a great Bible story we have just had read to us. Daniel in the Lion's Den. It is one of, if not the most famous Sunday school stories. And I'm sure that's a story that you all know extremely well. But today, I hope that it challenges the youngest person present. And I hope that it challenges the oldest person present. And I assure you, it's already challenged your speaker. It's a tremendous story, but there is so much in it that we can learn from. Firstly, a small introduction to Daniel. The book of Daniel was 12 chapters long. The first six chapters are autobiographical, where Daniel was writing about his life and experiences, and they are many and varied. The second half, the chapters 7 through 12, are prophetical, and if you don't understand chapters 7 to 12 of the book of Daniel, you're missing a massive, important part of future events. And so they're pivotal to understanding what God has coming in his calendar. But the focus is Daniel chapter 6 this morning. But I want to, if you've got your Bibles still open, come to Daniel chapter 1, because I just want to remind you of a couple of things about Daniel. It tells us in Daniel chapter 1 and verse number 3 that the king instructed a man called Aspenas to take some people from Israel captive. And look what it says in verse 3. Some of the king's descendants, some of the nobles, young men in whom there is no blemish but good-looking, gifted in wisdom, possessing knowledge quick to understand, who have the ability to serve in the king's palace who they might be able to teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. So the king said, I want the very best of the young men that Israel has to offer. Don't just go and get me anyone. I want you to go and find the finest young men that can be found. And Daniel was one of those young men. And he had everything going for him. He was a relative of the king or a noble. He was from a royal line. It tells us that he was young. It tells us that he had no blemish that there was nothing about him that would would make you sort of look twice. But you would look twice at his good looks, because it says he was good-looking. It says that he was already, as a young man, gifted in wisdom. He'd already been well-educated. He was possessing knowledge. He was quick to understand, and he was able to learn the language of the Chaldeans quickly and well. And so he was a young man who had all of his future ahead of him. I want to suggest to you that in chapter 1, we're talking about a young man who is only 16 years old. Now, I'll I'll come back to that shortly. But 16 years of age, and he is taken from his homeland of Israel, he's taken from his family, he's taken from his bright future, and he is taken into a foreign kingdom where he will serve a foreign king and where they serve false gods, a nation of idol worshippers. And he's taken into that situation, completely against his will. I want you to turn back in the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah and chapter 39. Just keep your finger in Daniel. But come to Isaiah chapter 39. So it tells us what was done to these young men. Isaiah 39 and verse number 7. Speaking prophetically of what would happen in the day of Daniel. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
Now that word eunuch is from the Hebrew word. Of course, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. It's from the Hebrew word sores. And there's no easy way to say it. The word sores simply means to castrate. To physically alter forever these young men. So we're speaking about a 16-year-old boy who's been taken from his family, taken from his homeland, taken from his future, and his future now has been forever changed because he has been physically altered in a way that cannot be reversed. What would your response be as a 16-year-old boy? Well, in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel's response was, I will not defile myself. He purposed in his heart that he would live a life of holiness and a life that would bring glory to God. And because he purposed in his heart as a 16-year-old boy, despite everything that had happened to him already in life, he was able not just to change a king, not just to change a kingdom, but Daniel changed the world. And if you could be a bit more like Daniel, and if I could be a bit more like Daniel, then those things that you want to target in the next three years, you would smash them. Absolutely smash them. Because you would change Montmorency. And I would change Pakenham. And together we would change Melbourne. Perhaps we could even change the world. Because the same God that helped Daniel do it is the same God that still helps us. He's taken from Israel, which must have felt like a country town, a bit like Pakenham. When all of you heard that we were from Pakenham, it was, ooh, like it's some kind of farmland. Pakenham has changed, folks. It's part of Melbourne now, and there's tens of thousands of people that live there. And it must have felt a little bit like that, that when Daniel was taken from from Israel and he was coming into Babylon, let me tell you, there has never been a city like Babylon since. Not only was it the biggest metropolis of the day, it is the biggest metropolis in the history of the world. There has never been since a city the size and majesty of Babylon. It was 96 and a half kilometres, the walls around Babylon. 24 kilometres square on every side. The biggest city in Australia, it will surprise you to learn, is the city of Brisbane. Brisbane is actually the third biggest city in the world in terms of geographical size. It's 16 kilometres. The CBD is only 2.2 kilometres. Take the great city of London. It's one mile square. That's why it's so congested and so busy. Because millions of people live within one mile square of a city. Here we're speaking about a a city that was 24 kilometres square. It was massive. The walls were 300 feet high. That's 91 metres for those of you who are in metrics. They were 80 foot thick, that's 21 metres thick, solid brick. They were into the ground, 10.6 metres, 35 feet, so that people couldn't dig under the walls, and they had such a strong foundation. There was 402 metres of cleared space around the entire perimeter, 96 kilometres of the wall, where they built a moat. There were 250 towers, which were manned by soldiers 24 hours a day. There was more than a 100 gates of solid brass. There were 53 temples in the city of Babylon, 180 altars to the goddess Ishtar, who's the goddess of love and war. 
who they worshipped relentlessly. And that's where Daniel, who's come from Israel, has been taken and put as a 16-year-old boy and his future has been completely stripped away from him. And not only that, they now give him a new identity because they change his name from Daniel, which his parents gave him, to Belshazzar or Belteshazzar. Horrible name that was given to him. I want to give you that background because when we come to chapter 6 that was read to us this morning, we've now moved 69 years from chapter 1. So we're not talking now about a 16-year-old boy. If he was 16, as I suggest in chapter 1, then when this man is thrown into the den of lions, he is 85 years old. Now, I can't definitively tell you that he was 16 in chapter 1, but I can definitively tell you that there's 69 years between chapter 1 and chapter 6. And so if he's not 16 in chapter 1, if you say he has to be 20 or 25, that's fine. It just means he's older in Daniel chapter 6. You can't have your cake and eat it too. He has to follow through the age. Now, the average age in Babylon in these days was 70 years of age. That was a life expectancy. And so he's already well exceeded that. For 69 years now, in chapter 6, he has been the servant to foreign kings in a foreign land who serve false gods. And how has he acted? With absolute distinguished service. What it says in chapter 6 and verse 3, Daniel distinguished himself above all of the other governors. So much so that at the age of 85 or thereabouts, King Darius wanted to set him above the entire realm, effectively to make him the prime minister of Babylon, the greatest metropolis in the history of the world. Now, it's not the first time that he's been the prime minister because he was actually made the prime minister in chapter 2 when he was promoted by Nebuchadnezzar over the entire affairs of Babylon. And in chapter 2, he was 18 or 19 years old. And so when he was 18 or 19 years of age, he was effectively the prime minister of the greatest civilization that has ever been in the history of the world. And now at the other end of his life, at the age of 85, the king wants to make him effectively the prime minister again of the greatest civilization the world has ever seen. Now what does that say about this Daniel? That he started well, he continued well, and he finished well. It wouldn't be lovely if in churches we have people who start well and continue well and finish well. Perhaps you say, well, I'm afraid I didn't start very well. Well, then please continue well. At least do that and finish well. And perhaps if you're really honest, you're going to say, you know, I didn't start or continue well. and My, my life's almost over. Well, please finish well. Let's get one of the three. But it's lovely, those of you who are younger, if you could try to do what Daniel did and get it right each stage of life, that you would start well, you would continue well, you would finish well. I studied about Daniel earlier this year for the purpose of speaking at a Christian farmer's camp in May at CYC Forest Edge. And about 120 farmers, all men, came together, really practical, simple men, who wanted practical, simple teaching, so my kind of men. And they, they asked me to come and speak. And the 120 farmers were not there to hear me, if they're being totally honest. The other speaker was far more impressive than me. His name is the Honourable John Anderson, 
the former leader of the National Party and Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. And so they were here to hear John Anderson and this other joker called Gordon Little happened to be there. And I was speaking on Daniel chapter 6 and I said, you know, none of us have ever had a job with the kind of pressure and responsibilities that Daniel's had. None of us know what it's like to be the Prime Minister of a country. And I looked down in the front row and John Anderson's got a smirk on his face. And after the meeting, we were having a bit of a chat and he said, you know, I was the acting Prime Minister during September 11 when the terror attacks took place in New York. And I was also the acting Prime Minister when the tsunami hit Indonesia. And a response to that was, was very significant. And I said, how was the pressure? He said, it was unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. I said, John, how would you like to have been the Prime Minister at the age of 18 or 19? And he said, it would be absolutely impossible, absolutely impossible. I said, John, how would you like to be the Prime Minister at the age of 85? And we've got a guy in the White House who's about that age. <laughs> not quite sure how he's doing that but but John Anderson who's been in that job before he said even more impossible I just couldn't do it I couldn't do it now he was in his 70s in his 70s now I couldn't do it now far less 85 but here's this Daniel and he has absolutely excelled in his secular life for the entire duration of it under significant duress pressure and stress can I say this We are now living in a generation where young people who get employed have this incredible sense of self-entitlement. Christians should not have any sense of self-entitlement. Christians should be the best employees that employers have ever had. Not self-entitled, self-sacrificing. Where you in your workplace can demonstrate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and can show something of a testimony for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Wouldn't that be lovely if if Christian employers went out of their ways to employ Christian employees, or even non-Christian employers, saw that there was something special in a Christian employee. And so this man, Daniel, distinguished himself in his secular employment. And when these other governors wanted to, to take advantage of him, they could find no fault in anything he had ever done for the king. He was completely faithful. He had never stolen paper clips. He had never taken a sickie. He had never used a photocopier without authorization or whatever the alternatives were back in those days. He was simply faithful, diligent, committed, despite the fact that he was a slave that was taken from his homeland at the age of 16 or thereabouts. And his future was completely removed from him. He still served with such loyalty and faithfulness. What an example that is. And so these men, they say, we're only going to find fault against this Daniel if we find it against the one thing that he prioritizes above his secular life. The law of God. The only thing that we have seen that he's even more diligent in than in his secular work is in his devotion and his testimony to God. His relationship to God seems to be the most important thing to him. What we want is power. Whereas this man, he seems to just crave a relationship with God. And the only way that we're going to find any occasion against him is if we find an occasion concerning the law 
of his God. And so not only was he consistent in his secular life, but he was consistent in his testimony and his devotion to God throughout his life. What an example that is to us. And so these men, verses 6 down to verse 9, they put plans into place, fueled by pride and power, and they tell lies to the king that we've all consulted together to come up with this law. They haven't because Daniel's not being consulted, the most important of all of the governors. But perhaps thinking that Daniel has been one of those who have been consulted, Darius seems to think that this ludicrous law is a good idea. What a stupid law. Have you ever taken time to consider how ridiculously annoying it would be to be the only person in the world that could be asked a question for 30 days? I hate being asked questions. These days, my kids don't ask me any questions. The only questions they ask me is, where's mum? And I normally say, I don't know. Questions, why? When kids are small, they only want to know why. And it used to drive me insane. And you'd eventually say, because I said so. That's why. You just get tired of it. But here, Darius, he seems to think it's a good idea that for 30 days, the only questions that can be asked can be asked to him. It's a very strange law. But he does it anyway. He signs the writing. Verse 10 is arguably the greatest verse, not only in the chapter, but in the book. Perhaps even the Old Testament. It's a big statement. But it's a pretty mighty verse. What it says in verse number 10. Now, when Daniel knew, wasn't something done in ignorance. When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. He went to his upstairs room with his windows being opened. Why, Daniel? Why not just for the next 30 days close your windows and draw your curtains? And it's good that you still want to pray, Daniel, but why not for the next 30 days don't you just pray in the closet? You're still praying. That's more than most of us would do if we're being honest. But he didn't change his habit. As he's always done, facing toward Jerusalem, the place that he was taken, the place that he has seen so many visions of of the future, the place that he is praying that the visions that he's seen will be fulfilled. He gets down on his knees, an 85-year-old man, down on his knees, not once, not twice, but three times a day. I would suggest to you morning, noon and night. Busiest career, secularly, that any of us could possibly imagine. And yet this busy man would find time, not once, not twice, but three times a day, to get down on his knees and pray. How could Daniel change the world? Because Daniel was a man of prayer. And he had always done it. It wasn't something he did for a week or for a month. He wasn't on some kind of spiritual high. And he quickly dropped off the cliff. This was his habit. It was the purpose of his life. You know, it's lovely when a testimony is open without fear. I was flying to Brisbane some time ago to speak at a Bible conference And as I was sitting in the plane, I got my iPad out. I love iPads and iPhones and all kinds of gadgets. And I was preparing for one of the messages. And so I was reading the Bible on eSword, one of the apps that I use, and I was praying and I was meditating and I was writing some notes in preparation for speaking. And directly opposite me was a young girl. She would have been no more than 20 years of age 
and she got her tray table down, she went into her bag and she pulled out her physical Bible and she put it on the table and she read. And then she would close her eyes and I could see that she was praying. And then she would go back and she would read. And then she would pray. And then she would read. And then she would pray. And that dear young girl did it for two hours. We were sitting on opposite aisles of the aeroplane and every single person that walked past us looked at her and didn't look at me. Why? Because she was making a testimony for the Lord. As far as they were concerned, I was playing Angry Birds or some other kind of game on my iPad. I wasn't, I promise, I was reading the Bible. We were doing the same thing, but she was making a public testimony. Can I encourage you, particularly the young ones, to get back into the physical Bible? It's a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's a great testimony. Secondly, the batteries don't run out. But you know, I can't tell you the, the, the verse, the chapter and verse of, every, of everything, but for some reason, when you read a Bible consistently, you know where it is on the page. When you use a device, all the pages look exactly the same. It takes away, and that's a really important thing. You're talking to somebody and you're trying to explain a gospel verse and you just don't have the chapter and verse, but you know where it is. You know it's in the book of Romans and you know it's on the left-hand side of the of the right-hand page. You, you just get this instinctiveness of knowing where it is on the page. And we take the physical Bible away, we lose that ability, and I think that's a bad thing to lose. But more importantly, we lose the testimony. Wouldn't it be lovely if the believers at Montmorency, the believers at Pakenham, were not ashamed to take out their Bibles on the trains? We're not ashamed to take out their Bibles in the cafes? We're not ashamed to take out their Bibles on the aeroplanes? We're not ashamed to walk even to the car with their Bible in their hands? So that people can see a testimony without you ever preaching. That might be the only way that the Holy Spirit has to work in their hearts, but that can be enough for him to do his work and convict them of sin and their need for a saviour. But you have to do your part too. And so wouldn't it be lovely if we had, like Daniel, no fear and we were prepared to have this open testimony of the windows open and we were kneeling down to pray. When was the last time you knelt down to pray? Have you ever knelt down to pray? Suggest you kneel down and pray for your vision if you want to see it fulfilled. Notice the Lord Jesus often would kneel down to pray. When you kneel down to pray, what you are doing is you are humbling yourself before the God of heaven. When you kneel down to pray, you are saying, I am nothing. You are everything. I am not worthy to come into your presence, yet here I am. The children of Israel, on one day a year, the Day of Atonement, one man, the high priest, Aaron, would get to enter inside the veil into the most holy place where God's presence was. Everybody else would stand at the doors of their tents in awe. What must it be like to enter into the very presence of God? And you and I, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we get to enter into the very presence of God whenever we desire. And we don't understand the privilege and we don't understand the reverence. But we ought to get often down on our knees and humble our hearts as we enter into the presence of God. And if an 85-year-old man 
who is busier than I or you have ever been. He can do it three times a day. Surely you and I can do it sometimes. And so he gets down on his knees and it says, not only did he pray, but look at this, he gave thanks. Daniel, what do you have to be thankful for? You've been a servant to foreign kings in a foreign kingdom, in a foreign land for 69 years. You were a noble. You had your own servants. You had the brightest of futures ahead of you. And now you are, until death, a servant to kings who have altered you physically forever. What do you possibly have to give thanks for? On top of that, despite your distinguished service, everything you have done, they're now making it illegal for you to pray. And you're praying under the threat of being thrown into a den of lions and you find time in your prayer to give thanks. We've got so much to be thankful for. And so often we don't give thanks. We pray to God and we give him a shopping list. Well, today this is what I would like. I want this and I want this and I want this and I would like it quite quickly, please. In Jesus' name, amen. And we forget to give thanks. Daniel gave thanks on his knees. We should do the same. What a man. You can see how desperate the king was to reverse this decision. That he would labour until the going down of the sun to try to find a legal way of getting Daniel out of the predicament that he had created. Look what the king says in verse number 16. The king gave command. They brought Daniel and they cast him into the den of lions. This is an 85-year-old man. But the king spoke, saying, Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. What a testimony. I know that there is no one in my kingdom who serves me better, Darius would say, to the point that I'm about to promote you to be the prime minister of the entire realm as you were as a young man. I've heard of your exploits. Daniel was famous. Chapter 5 tells us what the queen of Babylon would say about Daniel and what he had done. Everybody knew Daniel. And Darius says, but I know that you're God who you continually serve, that you're not just serving me. There's one who you serve to a greater extent because he was consistent throughout his life in his service for God. Now, can I say this lovingly? As I travel around churches, increasingly I see people say, that's not my job. I don't get paid to do that job. That's someone else's responsibility. And that's one of the problems that we have in churches today is that the people who are in churches are not serving God continually. And that should be your desire. We are here for that purpose. We are here to serve God and we are here to glorify God. The Lord Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savour, if it can no longer flavour, then what good is the salt? And so I would encourage you, I don't know anything about any of you, but I would encourage you, don't just come to fill up a seat and to keep the seat warm, but to get your sleeves rolled up and to serve God continually, as Daniel did. Because that's what churches need. More importantly, that's what communities need. 
There's churches that are prepared to serve with people in it. Not because you've got a title, not because you get remuneration, because you want to serve God because it's what God saved you for, ultimately to serve him and to glorify him on the earth. And so Daniel served God continually. He says it again in verse number 20. When he comes back to the den of lions after the evening has passed, when Daniel has been in there all night, and he comes with a lamenting voice to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God. What a statement from a king. A king who serves false gods has seen the testimony of this his servant, and he would say, servant of the living God. Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lion's mouth? And isn't it wonderful when Daniel calls back? They haven't hurt me. They haven't been able to touch me because I'm innocent in the sight of God and I've done nothing wrong to you. And so God has protected me all night. We read together the next decree that Darius would write. Can you just imagine... We've just voted for the voice referendum. Can you just imagine if Anthony Albanese or any of our political leaders got up and said, I want to write this decree into the Constitution. I decree in every dominion of my kingdom that men must tremble and fear before the God of the people of Montmorency. For he is the living God. Steadfast forever, his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. What a decree. In the law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be changed. And he writes it in verse 25, to all peoples, to all nations, to all languages that dwell in all the earth. The greatest kingdom of the day literally the superpower of the age, broadcasts to the entire world. This is the decree in our kingdom, and you should fear it, for you should fear our kingdom, that men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Daniel, it says in verse 28, prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. And I can tell you this, that Daniel would go on, he would serve in Babylon for 77 years and he would die in Babylon. The captivity of the children of Israel in Babylon was for 70 years. And so Daniel would see his countrymen go home. But Daniel, who prayed toward Jerusalem three times a day, would never set foot again in Jerusalem. Why? If Daniel was here, Daniel, why did you not go back to Jerusalem? You clearly loved it. You prayed for it three times a day. Why did you not go back to Jerusalem? And he would say, because I was in the place that God wanted me to be. I was God's witness at the right time in the right place. Oh, it was hard. There were 77 difficult years. It was hard. But through my simple testimony, God, not me, God changed the world. Now, there's times when Christian life is really hard. And I would be lying to you if I said that it was easy because it's not. 
And I remember when I was young, I still think I'm quite young, but when I was younger, I used to look at older men and I used to think, well, when I'm their age, it's going to be a whole lot easier. I'll know so much more and the Christian life's going to be less challenging. And I heard those older men say, the older you get, the harder it gets. And I couldn't understand it. I didn't want to listen to it. The older I get, the harder it gets. Challenges change. The challenges remain. And Jesus said to his disciples, and therefore to us, the world hated me, it will hate you. And we are living in a country which is becoming increasingly hostile to genuine Christian testimony. So what's our response? Brothers, sisters, can I implore you? Be like Daniel. Stand up. Stand alone. Stand firm. And watch God change you, your family, your church, your community. Because he hasn't changed. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for the example of Daniel. We give thanks for the simple truth that the the one who was working through Daniel is the same one who wants to work through us. But we need to be willing. We need to be vessels which are able to be used the same way Daniel was. And so we pray that you would challenge each of our hearts, whether we are young or whether we are old, whether we're 16 or whether we're 85 or somewhere in between, that you would challenge our hearts to purpose in our hearts not to defile ourselves but to live holy lives, to live lives of consistent testimony in the workplace, in the home, in our universities or schools, to live lives of consistency in the communities in which you've placed us, that people would know that we are believers of the Lord Jesus, that we are different, and that whilst we are diligent in the things that we do secularly, we prioritise above all of those things a relationship with God. And Father, we pray that they would, they would know us to be faithful and they would see a consistent testimony, not just on a Sunday, but right throughout the week, month in, month out, year in, year out. Help us to be diligent in our service in the church and to be serving for you and for your glory alone, not for our own glory. Not that others would see what we have done, but so that others can see who you are and what you can do for them. And so we just pray for your blessing upon every person that is present here today. We pray for your help for the remainder of the day and for the time of fellowship we have. We pray that you would bless it. We give thanks for all that you do for us in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.